Thank you, Jim, and glad to see everybody here. I'm going to talk for hopefully about 15, 20 minutes. What I'm talking about, I want to be clear from the start, is about joy and fun, freedom, and most of all for sustainability professionals, opportunity, because I think there's huge demand for what we do and not a lot of supply for it. But in the meantime, some of it may sound a bit direct. I haven't met a lot of you, so I'm going to make certain assumptions about you, but which could be off. But maybe I can start with a show of hands. How many people here, this is, I think I know the answer to this one, but how many people here believe that there are some environmental issues that are big problems that we as humans face? Okay, I see a lot of hands. Of you who have your hands up, how many of you feel that you pollute more than you would like to and can't seem to reduce your personal pollution as much as you'd like? So I see, it looks like all, most of the hands or maybe all the hands went back up again. One thing I found is that there's no one in the world, no person or company, I believe, that intentionally goes out and says, I'm going to pollute. I'm going to do something just for the sake of polluting. Virtually every place that does pollute says they have some mission and they believe that I'm going to make the world better in some way. In the process, I may pollute, but I want to reduce that as much as I can, but I'm doing what I think is most important for the world. That would be true of Exxon, of Dow, of Monsanto, of places that I think a lot of us think of as polluting. And they are doing what they think is helping the world, and they're polluting on the side. So I don't want to sound harsh, but virtually all of us fall in that same boat. We are doing what we believe. We're trying to help the world. On the side, we're polluting. And, well, we'd like to reduce it somewhat, but it's difficult to. And as one measure, I'm here at NYU where I teach, and NYU talks about how it has... Sometimes it'll say, I think it has the greenest campus in the country. Well, we're in lower Manhattan. We've got a great subway system. People can, it's very dense, so people can walk everywhere. Now, NYU didn't, can't take credit for that. Other times, NYU talks about how it has this great global campus because it has campuses in Shanghai and Abu Dhabi. It encourages people to fly all over the place. And I would estimate something close to maybe about 100,000 flights per year NYU promotes and is responsible for. Now, this is not particularly sustainable. This is very polluting. By comparison, I I brought up the, the mission of ISSP. I'm reading from the page here. ISSP empowers professionals to advance sustainability in organizations and communities around the globe. We deliver on this mission by engaging in three key activities, collaboration, capacity building, and partnering toward goals. This is exactly what we need and exactly what we lack a lot of, is people taking the lead and engaging others to do that as well. Now, it's a wonderful mission, but if we pursue that mission, if in pursuing that mission, we do what Exxon and and Starbucks and everyone else does of, well, we pollute while we're doing it, but what can we do? We're not going to be able to achieve that mission. The way I see it is I don't believe that you can lead another person to live by values that you live the opposite of. You can try, but I don't think it can work. There's a huge opportunity that I think that the world craves something like a Mandela, something like an African National Congress, like an AFC of sustainability. And ISSP is one of the organizations that seems like it could be it. It could lead other organizations and other individuals and elected officials to live more sustainably, to act more sustainably themselves, not just suggesting that others do, hopefully to find what I have found by, you know, a lot of people say, well, what can one person do? What can one organization do? One of the big things that I found is that the more that I move toward living more sustainably, 
the more that I find, contrary to my expectations and contrary to cultural expectations, which are to expect deprivation and sacrifice, is I find joy and fun and freedom in exactly what people expect not that of. I don't know if this is a call to action or a suggestion or, or promotion of potential that many organizations don't quite see, but I think ISSP could be in a particularly really useful spot to become the ANC, to become an organization that changes things from the inside out on a massive scale beyond what is available to others. Because I think what's missing is leadership. By leadership, I don't mean telling people what to do or giving people facts and numbers, but changing culture, changing behavior, leading through intrinsic motivation, which I think can only come as opposed to extrinsic, not saying, oh, all the stuff is terrible stuff is going to happen. Here's what you have to do. But I've done this. And having done this, I can tell you it's a great result. You will love the experience. Now, there's a big challenge here is that most people, I'm sure people here have heard people say, look, what one person does doesn't matter. What I do is not that, you know, divided by 8 billion, it rounds off to zero. I'm powerless to do anything different. My message is that you are powerful, you as individuals and you as an organization, and you for the organizations that you're in. To say that you're powerful, you have to face something that's very difficult. And there's a quote from Abraham Lincoln. You're probably wondering when Abraham Lincoln was going to come to this. That has become a touchstone in sustainability. Abraham Lincoln said, the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. Now, he didn't say what I believe is wrong or absolutely wrong or to own slaves. He said what you believe is wrong because when you do something that you believe is wrong, it's that internal conflict that creates for many people feelings of guilt or shame or helplessness or hopelessness. Unlike doing something that someone else believes is wrong, we can't escape it. We can't escape it except by stopping doing the thing that we believe is wrong. That can be very, very difficult. I mean, you can also change the beliefs, but when the beliefs have include something like do unto others as you would have them do unto you, it's very difficult to change that one. So if we want to change our behavior, in order to change our behavior, we have to face that we are powerful. But if we are powerful, that means that all the things we've done so far, like Exxon does, of saying, well, we're doing this and we have to pollute, but we have to. There's nothing we can do on the side. To say that we're powerful means that we all those choices that we made in the past were choices that we could have done otherwise. And that means that we have to face the feelings that doing something that we believe is wrong, that we believe are wrong, that Abraham Lincoln says is the most damaging thing we can do to ourselves. We have to face that, and that's very difficult to face. But only by facing that can we get to the other side. When we get to the other side, what I find, as I said before, is joy, fun, and freedom, and uh, community and connection. And then we can lead others. This is a very different message than what I hear from many other places. Only governments and corporations can make a difference on the scale that we need. Individual action doesn't matter. I believe that historically, movements have begun from the people who had the least power. And that's where it begins. But that's where it can really take on steam and keep going. And so I wanted to speak to people here as a call to action to consider, if you're not already doing it, moving toward living as sustainably as an individual and within your organization as possible with the expectation that the more that you do, the more that you will emerge as a leader, that people will look to you for leadership, and that it will lead to more action than people expect. So I hope that I conveyed that this was about 
joy, fun, and freedom and opportunity. And I don't really know you guys well enough to say, maybe you guys are all like, hey, Josh, we're already there. Or maybe you're thinking you're off the, it doesn't make any sense. But I, that's what I wanted to start with. Open up for questions. But I think Jim had said beforehand that he had, had some questions he wanted to talk to me too, ask me too. I'm not sure if people know here, do, do people here know AJ Jacobs? He's a writer. So he's famous because he keeps doing things like he'll do something for a year or for 30 days to live a certain way and goes like full on and then writes best-selling books about it and stories in the New York Times. So he really dives into things. His big book is um, Year of Living Biblically, I think, where he decided to live by the Bible for one year. He's not a particularly religious person, but he wanted to see what it was like. And there's pictures of him like with the beard and dressed like a, like a Middle Eastern pastoralist from the time. Okay, so you said about climate. And I always, whenever someone says climate, I always think people who work only on the climate tend to do things that fix one thing, but whack-a-mole pop up somewhere else. For example, solar and wind use tremendous amounts of fossil fuels on their own in their manufacturing and installation. They also use a lot of minerals, so they're not particularly environmentally, environmentally friendly on their own. So I say environment, not just climate, to get all these things. Although really when I say environment, I'm also thinking about our culture. But also, when he says don't get furious, get curious, or don't be furious, be curious, I think of it as when you get furious, get curious, because it's inevitable. And one of the big things about leadership is that, and especially sustainability leadership, is that leaders, as opposed to just managers, have to deal with people's emotions. We are not robots, and we have to face that it's real, and, and especially in sustainability, the emotions that come up can be very intense, and they tend to be emotions that we don't really like feeling. Insecurity, guilt and shame, inadequacy, f- fear, and so we, and fury, uh, fury, I acknowledge that we're going to feel these things and to expect them. I mean, that's part of leadership is that we're going to feel really awful at times. In lots of areas, that's the case. I mean, in business, sometimes we have to fire people. We get fired. We lose our funding, things like that. And so we are going to get furious. We are going to get full of helplessness and, and shame and things like that. And the best way through it is to face it and acknowledge it. Curiosity is one of the effective ways out of it. But I think that's one of the big things I think of. I should go back a step and uh, I'm not sure how many how much people have looked up my background, but there's one time a while ago, there's one big change that happened. I was looking at my garbage and at the time, this is about 10 years ago, and I thought, well, what I do doesn't matter. I mean, all the things that I, that I talked about, I, I thought government, only governments and corporations could make a difference on the scale that we need and things like that. But I looked down at my garbage in my kitchen and I thought, this garbage, though, is mine and no one else can take responsibility for it. And o- only I can. And I decided to. And so I challenged myself. I thought, I wonder if I could go without packaged food for a week. And I immediately thought, what, what, what point would that be? I, I, like, I'm in New York City. There's great cooking around here. People ship food from all around the world. I have the best stuff here. I would only sacrifice for no benefit to anyone else. But I still thought, you know, look, I'm, personal respons- responsibility is important to me, and it, it'll be an experiment. I ended up making it two and a half weeks, and I made it to where I learned how to cook from scratch. And over the years, I've learned to cook better. So now, oh, plus I saw a video of this woman. I don't know if you began, uh, Lauren Singer, I think is her name, a former student at NYU. And she gave this TEDx talk where she had all her garbage for one year could fit in a jar. I'm not sure if people have seen that. My first thought on seeing that was, all right, there's a trick. She's obviously cheating somehow. 
But then the more I looked into it, I found out, no, she was genuine. She really did it. And I thought, well, that's impossible. And then I thought, if she could do it, maybe I can do it. And so I started working at working at it. I haven't quite reached her level yet, but I am on my fourth year on one load of garbage. And I used to empty my garbage once a week. So I went to once a week to biweekly to monthly to every three months to every six months. And now it's like, I mean, it's, I'm on my fourth year with one load. And that led me to start, when I heard about what other people do, I thought, is that stuff impossible or is that possible? And I thought, why did I think, I mean, now I like my food more than when I was eating out all the time. And I started thinking, why did I expect it to be worse when when I actually tried it, it was better? And better for me means more delicious, more healthy, saving money, saving time, making it more accessible, you know, enabling people in, in underserved communities to access this stuff too. And so when I learned that flying across an ocean polluted about or warmed the globe about a year's worth of driving, I used to think, oh, I'm in Manhattan. I'm not driving. I'm one of the, I'm one of the good guys. And I realized that's a lot more pollution than I thought. And so I challenged myself to go for a year without flying, at which thought, like my heart leapt out, like, oh my God, I can't do that. I'm going to lose my job. My family's going to disown me. And I really had no idea how I'd pull it off. But I decided to give it a shot and immediately lost a couple of speaking gigs in Europe had to miss out on a family big event, but stuck with it. And after a while, my life changed I, in ways that if you want to know, I can go into more details. But a few months in, I thought, maybe I'll go for a second year. And then I decided, let me go for a third year and fourth. And then eventually I just found my life better without the flying. And there's no way I could have expected that. And that led to unplugging the fridge as an experiment to see how long I could do that. Then that led to me to try to unplug the apartment for to see how long I could pull that off. Well, first I unplugged the apartment for 24 hours. Sorry if this is a long answer, Jim. Uh, but I thought, you know, maybe, you know, I can hold my breath, but after I hold my breath, I have to, you know, I have to make up for the missing breaths and pant extra. I thought maybe if I unplugged for 24 hours, maybe I'd have to extra use later, but I didn't. And so after that 24-hour period, I thought maybe I could go for a year, uh, a month. And I had no idea how to make it past a couple of days. But I just went over the, to, oh, I, um, by this point, I bought a couple sol- a solar panel made for camping because there's no way I'm not going to wait for my building co-op board to approve putting permanent solar panels up there. So I got these things. I have to walk up the stairs, 11 flights, put them up, charge, come back down, climb back up, get them, come back down. So it's like a lot of work, but I'm not waiting for anyone else. I'm doing it. And I'm not trying to solve all the world's problems. I'm just seeing what I can do. So I didn't know how to make it more than a couple of days. And actually today, February 22nd begins month 10 off with my apartment disconnected from the electric grid. My one cheat is that when I am here at NYU, I can plug in my computer and my phone. Other than that, and it's only electric, you know, I, I still get hot water. I got, the building has a laundry machine in the basement. But basically I've been disconnected from the electric grid. And the learning that I'm coming, that I'm getting from that is amazing. So that was a long answer of how long I've been off the grid. I mean, my first thought is I'm having fun. I, to me, Figuring things out, I feel like I'm like a kid playing with Lego. So when I hear extreme, I think extremely fun. I like having fun. Now, climbing up the stairs doesn't might, let, might not look to, like fun to many other people, but I'm really thinking of the people on the receiving end of the pollution that I'm, that I'm reducing. So that's indigenous cultures and people that are living with our pollution that I'm reducing that, that contribution to, as well as the big thing about resilience, the less that we need an, uh, 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 an electric grid that's up 24-7, the more we can decrease the size of the grid, which lowers taxes, increases national security, and all sorts of other things. 
and also makes life easier for the people who are living more resiliently. Also, the more I do this, the more I realize more than 100 years ago, no one was connected to the electric grid. No one had a refrigerator. I think of myself as more traditional and connecting with people all around the globe that I used to go fly to see, but now I'm connecting with them more by learning from them. I'm not pretending to be indigenous. I'm not pretending to be sustainable. I'm just taking a step there and finding that each step that I take brings me more joy and freedom than I expected. And that motivates me to take the following step. If you look at only the beginning and the end, it looks pretty extreme. But if you look at, you know, in, in corporate speak, I'm on a, I had a mindset shift and I'm, I'm, I'm following a process of continual improvement. So every little, you know, I'm plugging for the month with a target of really, I'd be happy if I could make it just two days. That was the goal. But that was compared to a 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours is not that big of a deal. I had no idea that I would make it 10 months. I mean, I'm as surprised as anyone. To me, it's continual improvement because I like it. No one's pushing me to do this. It's just an amazing voyage of discovery. I mean, who would have thought someone could be off the grid in Manhattan for, I mean, now that I passed the, the winter solstice, which is the shortest day of the year, it's getting easier all the time now. So I know I'm going to make it, you know, barring an injury or the, a total equipment failure, then I'm going to make it through till I'll probably, I haven't said this out loud yet. I might never plug in again. I'm in total uncharted territory. So in that sense, there's some extremism, but it's still, it's extremely fun, extremely discovering. You know, it leads to these things like the New Yorker did this piece on me. I did a piece in Ars Technica, which became the top hit for a couple of days. Uh, I was in Time Magazine. This German TV crew recorded what I'm doing. They're still focusing on the visible stuff. They're not seeing the strategy and mission that's beneath it. So there's a, there's a lot left on the table. That's what I'm writing the book for. Yeah, I mean, the biggest one is also a mix with personal growth is that to believe something is impossible and then to do it, it resets a whole view of the world. Like I, I would have thought most of these things were impossible until I did them. And now I think that they're possible. So that resets, that's a big reset of like what cultural things did I grow up not questioning? But there's a lot of things on the sustainability thing of how to cook using very low power, how to make my, what power I have in the battery last as long as I can, how to deal with three rainy days in a row. A lot of it is how to speak about these things so that I'm not overly, I mean, maybe, maybe this has happened with, with people in the group here of like, of triggering a response of like, oh, well, you can do it, but I can't, or this sounds like a terrible thing to do, or, you know, learning how to be more effective about it. I'm getting more requests from people to speak at their groups. The New Yorker guy, he said, when I, I don't know if people read the New Yorker much, but it was in the talk of the town and the talk of the town is, uh, it's usually like, hey, look at this quirky person. And I told the guy, what I'm doing is about leadership. It's about leading people, especially politicians and corporate leaders and cultural leaders, actors and sports stars to change because they're at leverage points of systems and they can, they can change a lot more than the average person. And he said, you know, and, and don't, please don't do like the, here's this quirky guy stuff. And he said, all right, if you could do that, then if you do that, then can you arrange interviews so that I can speak to some of your clients? So I got him interviews with one of my clients from Exxon, one of my clients from BCG, one of my clients from another oil company that I can't name because I have to keep it confidential, but it's like a peer of Exxon at that level. And all three of them, when they met with him, said, you know, working with Josh on sustainability is, is fun. 
Like, I want to do it. I mean, each said it in his own way. And then each of them also said, what Josh does is essential and no one else is doing it. So I'm putting out, I raise all this here because I'm learning how to lead people to enjoy the process. I'm not telling them you have to do this. I'm not telling if you don't do this, you're going to get called hypocritical or greenwashing or stuff like that. In fact, one of the big results is them, it bleeds into what they do with their family, especially their kids. So it gets closer. They, they get closer to family and they give presentations internal. I, I know this because they've shown me and they show pictures of like themselves with their kids having fun. And they say, this is why we want to do this stuff. So how to make it more palatable, how to make it attractive to, you know, BCG type people for people at very polluting places. These are the people that I think are the most important to influence right now is the people at the most polluting places. That's where the biggest delta is available. How to work with them. That's the biggest thing that I'm learning. Well, I think of the corporate boardroom of American and European companies, the places that choose to extract the oil, that choose to make the plastic, that choose to frack and so forth. One day, I'm going to meet with the CEO of one of these very polluting places. And I'm going to work with them. I've developed something called the Spodic Method, which is this technique that I use to lead one person at a time, but now groups at a time, to share an environmental value and act on it so that they're acting for intrinsic motivation. That's what engages families and communities and so that they like doing these things. They like acting. Someday I'm going to be working with the CEO of some major polluting company. I don't know, Delta Airlines or someplace like that. And I'm going to work with that person. That person's going to see the potential and they're going to say, they'll have to work with the board and and shareholders and so forth, but they're going to say, we're going to ground some planes. These planes are polluting a lot and we're going to do we're going to do something historic and we're going to be the first to do it. And that person's going to know from experience that the feeling like, well, if we don't do it, someone else will. Someone will just take over our stuff. They know that the others will follow. That the others will have to follow. That everyone is waiting for someone to go first so that they can no longer say no one else is doing it. It's much safer not to act. And so everyone, most people are not acting. But once someone acts, everyone else is going to realize, oh, someone did it first. Now we have to follow. We're going to have to stop too. They're going to plug wells and things like that. And they're going to go down in history as some of the most influential people in history. And they're going to create legacies for themselves as individuals and as companies. That's the opportunity. Yeah, I'll comment that education, giving people information gets so far, it doesn't always change people's behavior and often gets people to push back. And I think what you're alluding to is oftentimes people... It's not that they don't know what would happen. It's not that they don't know that there's a problem. But they, the emotions that it brings up are scary. And they resist. They push back. And they'll say things like, look, I know that it causes this problem, but what can I do? All you're doing is making me feel bad. That's not going to change anything. The Spodic Method is designed to, when I work with people, first they realize that they can make a difference, that they, that they like the experience. And giving them that experience is it leads them to think of what can I do more? What can I who else can I bring along? And then after that mindset shift, before the mindset shift, what acting feels like deprivation and sacrifice, it feels like pointless. After the mindset shift, it feels like, what more can I do? Oh, if I like this, what else might might I like? So for example, before the mindset shift, Someone who looks at me climbing up the stairs, 11 flights to put those solar panels up would say, well, you're just trudging up the stairs. I'm flying and going and visiting these 
uh, distant cultures and, and, and learning more about the world. After the mindset shift, what I'm doing is connecting with them. Flying there is wrecking the environment and messing up the culture there. If you haven't had the mindset shift, it's what I'm doing may look backward and nonsensical and deprivation and sacrifice. After the mindset shift, it's more liberating and freeing. Then people want the information. Giving information, telling a smoker what smoke does to their lungs, who doesn't, and say, that generally won't get them to stop smoking. If they have chosen to stop smoking and they really want to, then more facts can help. Generally, there are some people who, they, when they hear enough facts, they'll say, okay, I want to change. That's rare. Usually it's more the emotional. The leadership is through emotions. Leaders' tools involve emotion and vision and listening, starting going to where they are as opposed to where we think they should be or where we want them to be. Role models. Now, role modeling alone is not enough. It's, leadership, by example, doesn't do the trick in sustainability. But if you lead without the behavior, that's virtually impossible. I'm going to comment more on your saying that you're powerless, that there's nothing you can do. None of us can change the past, and none of us can change that we were born into a world with systems and beliefs and a culture that when we were born, when I was born, flying was good. It was basically an unalloyed good. People had a sense that there was pollution coming out the back of the jet. People had a sense that people were being displaced from their land to get the fuel and to make the materials, to get the materials. But that was really a side effect. And so we've created lives for ourselves through totally innocent that require to maintain that lifestyle. It requires polluting. It requires hurting other people. There is a future, a bright future, where that's not necessary, where that doesn't, we don't have to live that way. But getting from here to there can be very, very difficult. And for better or for worse, we're the generation, we, the people who are alive today, we were born in one set of one set of culture with one set of cultural values and the world has changed and our knowledge of the world has changed. The temperature is going up, the more plastic in the ocean than fish is coming up soon. We know this stuff is happening. If we keep, we can not change. If we don't change, we know what's going to happen. So we who are alive today, who are born in one system have the unfortunate, if you look at it that way, or fortunate way of looking at it, that we are going to be the ones that have to change. To me, it's like, so it, it, we're addicted. I don't mean it's like we're addicted. I mean, we're addicted to the things that pollution brings, comfort, convenience, being able to fly when, when we feel like it. And it's like we didn't ask to become addicted. Usually if someone, if someone like takes cocaine, they know the risk. They know they could get addicted to it. For us, the world changed on us and be, it, 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 we got adverse effects we didn't know about. So it's like someone's soul, it's like doctors told people, Take OxyContin. It's not addictive. And then they got addicted. The Sacklers made money, and this person got addicted. It's totally unfair that the person who got addicted is the one suffering, and the person who got addicted, who addicted them is making the money. And it's even more unfair is that the only person who can make the person addicted, unaddicted, is the person who's addicted. The Sacklers who profited from it can't unaddict the person. So we live in a world in which we're addicted, we're stuck in a situation that we don't like. It's going to be very hard. The withdrawal is very complicated, very hard. But if we don't do it, we will never get there. So we're faced with the challenge of how do we unaddict ourselves? 
we who are alive today, we didn't ask for it. We didn't cause it. it, it to me, it's like, it seems one of the most unfair things I can think of in the world. The height of unfairness. Is that you're here, your wife is there, and we ha you have to pollute to do... How can you stop polluting and still have a marriage? I mean, on, on my side, I don't have a wife overseas, but I've learned to sail. I'm not suggesting that as a problem, for, as a solution for you, but it's one of the things that I'm doing in order to see the Eiffel Tower one day, to eat Thai food in Thailand someday, so I can sail across to get there. Again, not suggesting that as a solution for you, but you got to find something. I mean, it's up to you. It's your values. But as long as you keep flying, you're going to realize you're doing something. You, it's your values, but if it were me, I would be doing something that I knew was wrong. What Abraham Lincoln says is the most damaging thing I could do to myself. Very difficult. Totally unfair. And it's the only way out is for us to figure those things out. The people who are alive today. I had on my podcast a um, uh, the chief engineer of an airline company. And my takeaway is that there's no way to have flights across oceans sustainable. Not in our lifetimes. And if it's ever going to happen... The absolute worst way to do it is to fly with polluting jets. If we want innovation, we don't keep funding the incumbent. So I, I, these are very big challenges, that these are the challenges that we face, all of us. We all have grown up in worlds where we live, I don't know, a, a, an hour commute into the city, and we have to figure out how to not commute an hour in the city every day. These are the challenges. These are the leadership challenges that face us. May I present it fairly bluntly, Mark? One of the things I've been asking people lately, and you don't have to answer this, but for everyone's consideration, is imagine someone else had uh, lived overseas from their spouse. And in order for them to fly, you would be kicked out of your home and put in a refugee camp with tainted water, polluted. You would lose your home. Would you support that person flying to see their spouse all the time. It's very different when, it's different for different people, but in, to me, to think of myself on the receiving end of it makes it very different. Would I want someone, I'd probably want that person to move, to be together or something. Now that leaves the open question of what about holidays and family, things like that. These are very difficult problems and these are the problems we have to face. Sorry if that was too long of an answer. And sorry if it wasn't directly what you were looking for. Well, more than anything else is to live by one's values, even in the face of difficulty. That's one of the most, one of the greatest sources of stories. And it's also very hard. If the other Mark does figure out a solution here, he will be able to tell a story that many people want to hear. One that I can't answer. I can't answer what to do if my spouse is overseas. If he figures that out, I don't know if it's going to be a TED Talk or, I mean, he'll be able to lead organizations and say, look at what I've done. It's going to be really hard, but that's a potential available to him. At the beginning, I thought of stories of, of interesting stories of, um, if you want, I can tell a lot of stories, but they weren't my stories. They weren't stories that I'd lived through. They weren't stories that I've, of people that I knew that lived through. Only when I started living through stories, then could they be more genuine and authentic. Like a little, uh, some time ago, there's a, uh, especially during the pandemic, I would meet people in Washington Square Park, keeping outdoors. I wanted to meet there also because I pick up litter there. And I don't know if people know if people visited Manhattan, but Washington Square Park is like in lower Manhattan. It's like our backyard. Over the pandemic, it just got overrun with 
heroin and crack and, and meth and, and, and garbage everywhere. I mean, the amount of garbage, I mean, also every place around the place, like the cafes and the restaurants, they all sell takeout stuff that's packaged and people go to eat there and the stuff gets blown around and all the trash cans are over full by, by noon. And so it's just garbage everywhere. So I meet people there and especially politicians, especially CEOs. When we walk around, you can see their eyes open and they're like, I, the, the amount of glitter didn't change. Their vision of it changed. So one particular CEO that I worked with, sometime later I was talking to him and he was walking somewhere with his daughter and he said, Josh, my daughter was picking up litter. And I said to her, well, I'm glad to see you doing that. She was doing it safely, I guess. And uh, not that there's much risk in picking up litter. And he said, darling, how, how did you happen to do that? And she said, I pick it up because you pick it up. And he said, Josh, I pick it up because of that time in Washington Square Park. So I led his daughter through him. I didn't mean to. I didn't know that was going to happen. It was heartwarming. This is not like world changing. But it's something that happened that's genuine, authentic, that really happened. And the guy at the, not the Exxon guy, but the other oil guy, when I walked him through the Spodic method, he picked up that he was going to pick up litter and he ended up involving his daughter with it. And the two of them would pick up litter at, um, at the playground. And at first they were afraid to, not afraid, but, um, oh, what if people see us? But then people saw them and got on board. And so he started getting action around him. And so one time his daughter was on the jungle gym she runs over and picks up the piece of litter. And what I know about this is that he has a picture of her, like like it's an adorable little girl holding a piece of litter. I mean, I can't see this litter. She's just holding something. It looks like a guy picked up who fished like a really big fish. She's really proud of it. The way I know about this picture was that bringing me into this giant company, they need to make sure that the leadership coaching, leadership, a leadership coach comes in. His work, my work has to be like their work. So he had to give a presentation to them about Josh's work, how it does it align with this company's leadership techniques. And he put that photograph in the presentation as a result of my coaching him, why it improved his life. I would never have thought, put a picture of your daughter in this corporate presentation. You know, so I don't know, this is just a particular story that comes to mind at this particular moment that came from living it. And leading someone else, you know, through the Spodic method to live it. And I teach this stuff. You know, I, I, my, one of my goals is like to get more and more people to learn how to do this themselves, how to lead their companies, how to lead other companies, how to become sustainability leadership coaches. You know, I don't want to corner the market. <laughs> I breathe the same air. I want everyone, I, I, I'd prefer someone learn my stuff and, and beat me to it and do it better. Does that answer? To, I mean, it's really living it and sharing I don't know if I've done a good job in this one of sharing the the failures the the things that didn't work out the I mean I remember at the beginning thinking I, I mentioned very early on we could use I think there's demand for a Mandela of the environment and when I first started saying that I thought am I going to try to be the Mandela of the environment is that like what kind of chutzpah is that am, am I going to be laughed at like if I succeed you know, if I fail People are going to be like, Josh, what were you thinking? Mandela. Yeah, right. You. So if I fail, I, I, I feel terrible. If, I, if, I, if, if I'm crazy enough to think that I'm going to succeed, I'm going to take, take on global interests, the most powerful organizations in the world, and I'm going to try to take them on. Like, who, who do I think I am? And I had to be quiet for a long, long time. I really was – I still feel kind of funny talking about this. 
and all these weird things of like, like right now I'm at NYU. So I'm in this, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing power. And the more I do it, the more I'm like, I really have to work out, I have to work out all these little details of like, how much power am I comfortable using here? Could I have gotten away without coming here this particular for this particular call? It's really complicated, but it, on the other side of it is figuring these things out. Yes and no. I mean, if they don't do this one and they do a different one instead that they wouldn't have done otherwise, then it doesn't work. If this meeting could have been local we and it had engaged lots of local – like one of the things I'm trying to do is to not – has anyone ever been here, been to an event with Al Gore at it? I've I've gotten a bunch of okay so Deborah I'm not sure if you got invitations to say like the former vice president Nobel Prize winner Oscar winner come see him and I was like oh I really want to go see him but that meant he has to be at all these things and that means he has to fly around a lot and that fuels his opposition the people who disagree with him are like well look at him so I don't want to get trapped into that I don't want things to depend on me personally so if I want to have presentations in LA. I want to train someone in LA, in LA to do it and they can, maybe they'll do better than I could. So I want everything to be very local so that it's not only the, the people just need to fly less and it's much more community based, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not yet. Uh, there aren't yet things like Joshua Zbodek, former vice president, or you know, whatever. I'm not a vice president. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't go into the details of, I, I alluded to the Spodic method a few times. And uh, on this call, Mark's the only one, Mark, the host, is the only one who's participated in it. But it's a step-by-step process. I mean, the four steps are to ask the person what the environment means to them. When people, sh- most people's first answer is, is not, is, when, like when you think of yourself in the environment, surrounded by nature, what you think of is different than what anyone else thinks of. Like if you grew up in the f- near a forest, it might be a forest. If you grew up near a beach, it might be a beach. If you, Maybe it's something with a pet, but it's usually different for everyone. Most people, when they think of the environment today, their first thought is like what they read about in the paper is how some disasters are uh, coming up or something like that. But that's not their personal experience. That begins on my podcast. It's my favorite part of the podcast is letting people and, and giving people comfort and support and non-judgment so they can share what it means to them. And inevitably, something very meaningful comes out. Emotion, powerful emotion. And then I invite them to think of something they can do to act on that emotion. And, and I, I tell them not to save the world. It's nice to think about that, but just to act on that. And then I walk through, uh, through a couple of management steps to make it actionable. When they act on their values for their reasons, that usually creates the mindset shift. When I talked about the guy at the oil company and he was picking up litter in the park, that was because that came after he shared about the forest where he grew up when he was a kid and played around. And as it happened, that forest has been overrun with beetles that used to get frozen out, but it doesn't get cold enough. So the beetles have reduced this forest to uh, like, I haven't seen the pictures, but from what his description, it's like stumps as far as I could see. And he acted on what mattered to him. And he liked it. He liked the result because his daughter got into it and all that. That that happens almost every time. And I'm happy to teach people this technique. If people want to, I mean, I'm doing a, a, um, a mastermind group and, and I do workshops and things like that to train people in this. A lot of people do what I call management as opposed to leadership is they say, like, here's the little thing you could do. But the key thing isn't little versus big. It's intrinsic versus extrinsic. So I spend that time drawing out the intrinsic motivations. 
then I connect that. I invite them to connect for themselves, connect that emotion to action. And that action becomes meaningful because it's for their own motivation. And that generally gets a mindset shift. So if they, if it was big or small, it's not so important because the next thing they do will be bigger and the next thing will be bigger and they'll start sharing it with the family and friends and coworkers. So it's a very structured technique. Is it the best technique possible? I don't know, but it's the best one I know of. So far, so good. I haven't yet gotten the CEO of some major polluting company to say we're going to change our entire business model. But it will. It will happen. Well, I can tell you from experience that when I, when I lead someone through the Spodek method, what I have to give up is direction and magnitude. So I can't tell what emotion is going to come up for them. And so I can't tell where they're going to act. And I can't tell if it's going to be big or small. But what I get is motivation to do more. If flying is not the easy, that might not be the best place to start. You might start in some other place. Because if you, it's difficult, you can't really do it yourself. It, take, it, it really involves someone else working with you, someone supportive, non judgmental to, to bring out what motivates you and then act on what motivates you. That will lead you to find the bigger things through experience. Because I think like not flying, if that sounds extrinsic to you, if it sounds like something you should do or have to do or supposed to do, that's going to be pretty hard to solve. Where if it's something like um, in the case of the guy I was talking about picking up litter, that's what he wanted to do. As it happens, people at his job are saying, you've got an energy about you. Something's going on. What is it? And they're engaging. They want to they find out what's happening with him. So that's why he's getting the chance to bring me in to this giant company. Also, a lot of people, a lot of leaders feel they're afraid to act because they feel like they might be called greenwashing or they might be called hypocritical if they don't do it perfectly. What's much more important than doing it perfect, you don't have to be perfect. Leaders, I mean, we need leadership in cases where it's hard, where we don't know what to do. What is more important is doing it like authentically and genuinely and being to share where it's coming from and saying, this is the best I can do right now. I'm not going to stop here. I'm not saying this is the answer, but this is what I'm doing so far. And hopefully this will take me to the next stage. So in your case, it may be something else that leads to it, to leads to the, the I, I didn't start not flying and I didn't, I didn't think I would succeed. I didn't think I would like anything about it. it, it that took years before I was ready to say, I'm never going to fly again. And my, my family wasn't particularly happy when I declined to do the family vacation. So my, my sister found tickets to, Tokyo round trip, $800. I was like, that's really cheap. And I thought, maybe I'll start when I get back. And then I thought, am I trying to do this or not? You know, that was a real gut check moment. I, I don't want to pretend any of this is easy. It, it, there's, I had gut check moments all along the way. But looking back, I wish I'd done all these things earlier. Because I realized what was holding me back was my own self-limiting beliefs lack of self-awareness, acceptance of cultural norms that I didn't ask, ask for. Ah, uh, I, uh, sorry to interrupt, but uh, my dad is a very high fiber diet, the vegan and a lot of um, raw vegetables. And, and if someone doesn't have a high fiber diet and then they have a high fiber meal, if they're not used to it, then I think that was more the issue. They may have been a bit gassy, but I'm not sure. Yeah, at the beginning, I didn't know. My sister was like, 
shop at the at the farmers market. Join a CSA, a community supported agriculture, where you get a farm delivery every week. And I kept resisting and resisting and resisting. At the beginning, when I went to the farmers market, I knew maybe five or ten percent of the vegetables. Like if someone was like, "Here's some kale, here's some collard greens," I was like, "I don't know which is which." Now it's the other way. Now I know ninety five percent. I'm looking for the five percent that I haven't seen before, so I want the variety. But I mean, one of the big things I. A lot of people point out that a lot of places with less access than me. I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm trying to fix. That's the problem. We want, I mean, you, once all markets were farmers markets, there were only farmers markets. There was no packaged food. There was no plastic. And that wasn't that long ago. And in many places in the world, that's normal. So do we want the trend toward more and more packaging things shipped from farther and farther away? Do we want that to accelerate? Well, then keep shopping at the supermarkets. Keep shopping at Walmart for food. If we want to change it, the most important thing to do is to, if you if you have access to a farmer's market, shop at the farmer's market. Buy seasonally so it's cheaper. I don't, people keep saying that it's more expensive, but I, I found this report on what Americans spend on food broken down by category. And I spent less than the average American on food. And I'm getting all my stuff fresh. Not all of it. I mean, there's a, a co-op where I get the bulk foods. So I get a lot of dried beans and dried nuts and, and uh, grains and things like that from there. But I really had to start doing it. Nothing, there was no substitute for just doing it. Unplugging the fridge. I read this article that said most of the world doesn't refrigerate as much as the US. And it mainly talked about Vietnam. I had learned from these past experiences. If I analyze and plan, it just delays action. It's not a thing where I'm going to die if I unplug my fridge. I can always just plug it back in again. So I read this article and I, was like, I started analyzing and planning. And, and my, I was like, oh, that's, that's going to delay. Just, and I unplugged it before I could think about it. So I had the time that the stuff was in there melting to figure it out. I had made sauerkraut before, so I had to learn quickly how to ferment and pickle. But the thing I really liked was there was some school nearby me that had gotten rid of a bunch of oranges, and I had like 50 oranges in my freezer. Or I had 50 oranges of the ones that I hadn't finished yet. They were in my freezer. And I put them in vodka, and it's delicious. I just put, like, never buy orange vodka. Just buy vodka and put oranges in. It's really, it's like, two ingredients works really well and I, I don't know i just found it. it it was and then i would put the oranges including the peel on uh on desserts and so i'd like vodka soaked oranges and orange vodka but there's lots of things like that that i keep finding like my whole famous no packaging vegan stew was just figuring out how because i joined a csa and the csa for people who don't know it means that every week a uh, farm drops off at some drop-off point a bunch of vegetables and the people who get it every week we pay a big lump, a lump sum at the beginning of the season, and then every week we get vegetables and fruit. And we don't know what we're going to get until we get it. And my rule was never let any of it go to waste. So I'd never seen a tomatillo before. I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what daikon radishes were until I started getting them. And then I figured out what to do with them. They're delicious. I just didn't know that. And then I learned weird things like the daikon radish is a cover crop. So what's a cover crop? I learned that, like I meet the farmers. Every, every year the farmers have a, uh, a day when all the people who get the who they who belong to their CSA, we go up on Labor Day weekend, and we meet each other, and we all have it's a potluck lunch, and they give us a tour of the farm. It's like the highlight of my summer. So I'm I'm going to not directly answering your question, but the more steps that I take, the more the next step becomes obvious and clear and and fun, and I really love that that trip up Labor Day weekend to visit the farm. Now my mom goes. <laughs> There's a couple different concepts. I, I'm not sure about all of them, 
But this crop rotation, the cover crop is, I think, so that the, the it keeps the ground from blown away. Daikon radishes, and I think also they fix nitrogen. So there's legumes and clover. They restore the soil, what other plants take out. I think cover crops are there to keep the soil from blowing away and also fix nitrogen. So I'm not exactly sure the process, but I know that they're helpful. And it's so that you just don't have bare soil over the winter. And so daikon radishes also, these are the things that you get at the end of the season. So I'm not a farmer. <laughs> I don't know this stuff. I do have some stuff growing in my windowsill, uh, but I'm learning more. And I like that. Oh, man. my The first time... So I learned to sail, and I've only been in Long Island Sound and in New York Harbor. But I got invited to give this talk in Tulum, Mexico. And I thought, I'm going to take the train down to Florida or Texas and sail across. Now, this trip didn't happen. I wasn't able to make it happen. But I was talking to all these sailors to figure out how to make it happen. So when I talked to non-sailors about this idea of mine, they were saying, they would ask the questions that I would ask when people travel. It's like, where are you going from? Where are you going to? How long is the trip? When I talked to the sailors about it, they would ask, is it hurricane season? What are the tides that time of year? What are the currents down there? I never knew to ask things like that. I mean, if you if, if you use fossil fuels, you can bulldoze over nature. And, you know, anything short of a hurricane, you can get through. And I started to feel like I like this way of life better. Like maybe it depends on what the currents are. It depends on what the winds are that time of year. That changes what I can do and what I can't do. Humility to nature is what, like... Now I check the weather a lot more because I have to decide, like, can I go up on the roof? Is it worth climbing up 11 flights twice to get power today? Then if I have a bunch of sunny days in a row, then I can use a toaster. Toasters use incredible amounts of power. I didn't know that. That's another thing I've learned is how much power each thing uses. So the pressure cooker is the most efficient way to cook that I've found. So I mostly pressure cook now. But when I make, when I cut open squashes, I get all these uh, seeds like acorn squash and butter, butternut squash and things like that. And I have to save up the seeds. I have to dry them, but they're not edible quite yet until I have like five sunny days in a row. And I know there's going to be enough sunlight, enough power that I can use a toaster, which powers through, uses up a ton of energy, but then I can eat them. I get a lot of people sending me stuff of like, try this, try that. And I'll see what I can get. Like the battery company sent me, after my Ars Technica article, the battery company is sending me to test their new generation of batteries. So it like has more energy capacity and charges faster. So I'm glad to get the free one to see how that'll work. But there's also this one guy with a, um, he's got a bike generator. So it turns out if you want to power your own energy, it's like humans don't produce nearly as enough. Uh, you don't get that much power from working out, but he's persuading me to maybe consider getting a bike that powers a generator, that through a generator can power my battery. So that's another thing that I might try out. Solar ovens, I've seen a couple with pretty good reviews, but I'm, I'm trying to avoid buying things. This is a, um, accessibility is very important to me. If it's expensive. All right. If you guys have links, now, now you have me, now you check up on me and see if I've done it. I have seen a video where if you just put a, a chicken in a styrofoam thing with a 100 watt bulb, you can broil a chicken with just a 100 watt bulb. I'm learning a lot about traditional stuff of how people used to do things, not just for myself, but also like people used to make something called fruit walls. People realized that if you 
grew a tree next to a wall, especially if it's facing on the south side of a wall. It got a little more heat and you could grow fruit at a higher latitude. And then they learned if you made the wall really thick, it would absorb sunlight during the day and radiate during the night. So you could go even a little bit farther north. And they would make these mazes so that they'd get a little ecosystem and they could go even farther north. So they were growing like grapes in, in England for wine and things like that. And then eventually they realized a plate glass manufacturer got enough that you could put a plate glass over the plant and go even farther north. And then this, this trend always happens. Then they realized you can make the whole thing out of plate glass, heat it from the inside with fossil fuels. And then we learned, we lost the this traditional technique and replaced it with fossil fuel. And there, there's, I learned also about like lots of tools that are power tools now that we've lost the ability to do what we used to do without power. Lots of cooking techniques that I'm learning about, lots of shopping techniques. That's what, so going back to the, what about being labeled extreme is I feel much more traditional and learning about things that worked that I didn't know I was ignorant of. Yeah, composting is one of the, it's been a gateway drug for a few people because to me it's, it's oddly fun. That effect you talked about of lowering my amount of trash, plus since the trash was dry, there's no wet stuff. That, that way I can keep it for a longer time. And when I shop, I'm, that was one of the big things of like, do I want to buy this thing with packaging because that's going to go in the trash and I can, it motivates me to stick with more fresh stuff. Oh, that's something about, um, what got me in the New York originally was I wrote a letter to the editor, editor that they published. They did an article last August about how people are trying to bring refrigeration to Africa in order to reduce food waste there. And one of the things that you pick up on of systemic effects versus individual elements, effects of just the elements within the system. So if you cook a casserole and it's not finished and you want to keep it for a couple of days, if you put it in the fridge, it'll keep the casserole. It'll keep it fresh. That's one use. But the systemic use of refrigeration leads to, you'd think it would make fr produce fresher, but we extend our supply chains across a nation and we extend them to where the, it's no longer as it's not more fresh. So I wrote them saying, if we want to reduce food waste, we waste more food than Africans do on average. If we really want to reduce food waste, we should change our own system to refrigerate less and have things more local. Because the refrigeration on top of the food waste is, is the refrigeration pollutes a lot. And I said... I, I'm speaking from experience because I'm coming up on one year with my fridge unplugged, which was the case at the time. And I think that's what got it published was I was, gen I was speaking from genuine experience. And so the fact checker call called me and, and made sure that the facts were all there. And that's what led to the reporter doing the story on me. So that was a bit more of talk about the stories. Like to be able to say, I've done it. And I really didn't expect it. I, you know, the article that I read about was about Vietnam, which is hot and wet. And I'm in New York at the time. It was December, which is cold and dry. So it's different techniques. Well, I, I would go with the spotic method and go. I, I have to give up on the direction. If if they sense that I'm trying to get them to to get less delivery, they have all the answers. They they've already won that debate in their heads. So I got to give up on my choosing the direction. And if it doesn't go, if it doesn't work, if they don't bite, if every now and then I ask them what the environment means to them, and there's just nothing. They don't care. I don't know. Whatever, for whatever, I know that they care, but if I can't get anything, I 
move on to the next person. There's too many people to work with to, to spend too much time with one person who is resistant or I don't think resistant. It's like my hunch is that their protections are very high. I mean, my working model until I see otherwise, and I don't know these people, you do, I don't, if you know them, or maybe you just see the deliveries all the time and don't know them yet. But if I, my general expectation is that they know what they're, they know that they're doing something that they believe is wrong. And if facing it is going to bring up emotions that they really don't want to feel. I have to show non-judgmental support and listening and understanding and not talking over them or not talking at them or, 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 I mean, they're going to feel guilt and they're going to generally assign it to the person who's talked to them at the time. I can't make them feel more guilty than they do, but it might become more, less latent. If they see that through working with them through, if, through the Spodic method, if they reach a stage where they're starting to sharing things like, oh, I did something, I like it. What more can I do? Then if they ask for advice, then it's time to start giving it. Yeah, I've learned that one through. I mean, I, I've tried many times. And it's uh, if, if I initiate and tell them that has not been successful for me. The saving grace, for better or for worse, is that there's several billion other people who could use it. So I don't have to feel like I'm, I'm giving up on that person. I'm just going somewhere else. Oh, also, working with family can be difficult. I, I don't recommend starting with family. If they if they see you and, and, and join, great. But starting with them is, unless you know the relationship, it's, I usually recommend starting with supportive, non-judgmental friends and colleagues. Yeah, and I've, I, I mean, I've alluded to the Spodic Method and that I do workshops on that and I'm starting a mastermind group on it. And I'm not here to pitch, but if people want, I mean, you guys are here, it's 90 minutes in and you still, still haven't hung up yet. So if people are interested in more, either contact me or, or schedule another one of these with, as a workshop forum or something like that, I'm happy to because I'm mission-driven. The mastermind starts in about a month. But I, you know, I want to enable people to be leaders in their organizations. And if you choose to become a, a coach, as I'm doing, to, to lead many organizations or for that matter, run for office. <laughs>